Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ophil. Marca Mesut Ophil. That is some absolutely world-class sitting down there, staying at home, just sitting down. Oh, look, there he goes. He's eaten his fourth sandwich of the day. This is remarkable. This is Arsecast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, good morning to you. Good morning to you, too. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. How's it going with you? Are you, uh, are you staying alert? This is the thing that I need to know. Are you... Staying alert, James. On a scale of one to one hundred, what would you say your your state of alertness is? Because I think that gives us more nuance than simply one to ten. Sure, I lay awake all night uh, with a, a weapon under my pillow. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, in case the virus entered the building, uh, I was prepared to take action to defend my property, as it were. Mm. Um, so, consequently, I'm quite tired this morning. That's the problem. The more alert you are, eventually it's going to catch up with you. Yeah, that's true. I mean... Now I'm less alert. I'm sluggish. This is when I'm most vulnerable. It's counterproductive. They didn't think about the uh, the negative impact of this when they, what, I don't know, employed a marketing firm and paid them a lot of money to come up with a brand new slogan like, stay alert. I mean, it mm. could have been better, couldn't it? Be cautious. <laughs> Pay attention. Engage yes. maximum preparedness for things control the virus i do think compelling people to control the virus is is, is complex as well isn't it i mm. mean uh, it's it's very much not in our control <laughs> i would say no it's not i mean all the people who need haircuts and beard trims uh, you're hairy be wary i mean uh, think of the possibilities and they they just came up with stay alert i know Poor old Dominic Cummings and his meagre imagination. But there you go. Uh, yes, how are things on that side of the sea? They're okay. They're okay. Uh, you know, nothing really strange or startling to report. We've had some good weather. And, of course, when there's good weather, people come out. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what else to say other than it's sort of just chugging along and we're mm. waiting for more... Um, waiting for more information about stuff. You know, it's just... I, I don't know, the perception that, that it's kind of... I don't think it's nobody's uh, thinking it's over or anything like that, but I do think there's a, a measure of... Well, we've, we've suffered long enough kind of going sure. on. Sure, sure, yeah. What I find most fascinating is kind of the, the briefing strategy that exists around um, what's happening in the UK. So if you look at, like, the last seven days, mm. uh, you know, the the... The briefing to journalists, to political journalists, appears to have shifted quite dramatically across those seven days, and it almost feels like 
they kind of let out one version of a story to test the water to see how the public react to that. Kite flying, they call that in political terms. Is that terms? called kite flying? Yeah. I mean, I sort of, I, I think, funnily enough, to bring in an Arsenal parallel, I kind of feel a bit like there was a little bit of that going on around the Unai Emery situation uh, in back in whenever it was, sort of shortly before he sacked. Sometimes it felt like we were hearing contradictory noises coming out of the club and it mm. almost felt like testing the water uh, and I think the same thing has been employed here it is just weird the kind of drip feed of information you know we all got a 10 minute television broadcast here on BBC and ITV last night from the Prime Minister but it was you know quite light really on specifics and actually today we're hearing we won't get the full specifics until Tuesday so that is sort of a fairly lengthy period of time, you know, 48 hours potentially, of people not really knowing what they're supposed to be doing. It does feel like if you're going to give a 10-minute or 12-minute address to the nation, you would have the specifics ready to back up the things that you said. I mean, look, I can only speak um, about what's happening here, but just from looking at the reaction, obviously a lot of people on my Twitter timeline are in the UK, and there's just sort of a an element of confusion as to what exactly is being said and what it means and what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. Um, it doesn't feel like uh, something that is being designed to communicate directly in a, in a clear and concise way, almost as if, you know, there's some strategy behind this this lack of clarity. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think that's... I don't think that would be unfair. I mean, one of the things I found most telling is that you know, I watched it like everyone else. I was kind of, you know, my expectations were dampened by some of the briefing coming up to it. You know, it was made clear. I think on Thursday morning in the UK, we had headlines saying things like, you know, freedom on Monday and stuff like that. Mm. People, And there's a big kind of consequence to that. My wife um, works with adults with learning difficulties and it's been really interesting sort of being part of her going out and being a key worker in this period. Mm. And one of the things she's encountered is, uh, as a consequence of that media briefing, she had people who she cares for coming up to her and saying, I've heard the virus is over on Monday. Oh. And it's like, it's almost tragic in a way that you have to kind of, you know, then explain the full consequence of the situation. But, Mm. so yeah, that kind of messaging can be problematic. But anyway, yeah, I, um, yeah, I I found it amazing that it was a kind of a 10 minute, uh, 10 minute speech which didn't really mention family. Like, there was no talk about, well, you can or can't visit a family member at this point. And now today, there's Dominic Raab's out there in the press kind of sort of trying to firm up what the guidance is on that. But already he's been contradictory in two separate issues this morning. So it was very much focused on the business, getting back to business, uh, which I do understand. But I think there are Mm. personal things that matter just as much to people and that, that sort of were curiously absent. And I kind of find it telling almost that they were. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, let's not let's not um, dwell too much on the political no. side of this because it would drive you mad, in fairness, if you were to stop and think about it too much. So uh, let's just hope that everybody out there listening to this is, is doing okay and coping well enough as well as can be expected in the circumstances. And, uh, and that continues. Um, 
Has anything caught your eye from a footballing point of view? We know, of course, that the Premier League clubs are convening today uh, mm-hmm. to have a meeting regarding Project Restart, and there are some issues regarding um, some of the um, some of the bits and pieces in that, like neutral venues, and there's still the the issue uh, of um, the concerns raised by the medical. Um, yeah. people involved in football that, again, have had little or no clarity. And I think what, what's what's been clear is that the Premier League have pretty much not necessarily followed the lead of, of the government, if you like, but but um, are sort of saying, well, look, we will defer to the, the medical advice, the scientific advice, and if tomorrow uh, everything was opened up, then the Premier League would open up, etc., etc. They're not sort of out there making decisions on their own. So there are some some key issues for the Premier League to deal with today. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, how do you think, how do you think that's going to go? I mean, there's all this talk about rele- relegation being off the table and the bottom six teams want relegation taken off the table and um, all the implications of that. So it's going to be a fairly... Um, I won't say contentious meeting, but there's a lot going on. There is, and there's an unsurprising degree of sort of self-interest at both ends of the table, I think. You know, obviously, the bottom six aren't going to want to forgo their home games in a in a crucial relegation fight. Obviously, the clubs who have a chance of qualifying for Europe and the financial boon that would bring are going to push for that. And obviously, especially Liverpool, you know, hoping for that title win, however much it may have that asterisk against it now. I mean, I found the most sort of compelling development of the last few days, the news that Brighton had a third player test positive for the virus. And mm. that, that Todd Cantwell tweet off the back of it saying, you know, we're just people too. I find that, uh, I found that sort of very, what's the word? I mean, it, it, it spoke volumes really. I mean, look, unless you go into some really intense quarantine, players are going to be just as much at risk of getting this virus as anybody else. Do you feel like it might speak to a greater level of concern among the players than we're aware of right now? Because a few players have come out and said, look, you know, this is this is scary and frightening and what have you, but very few. And I suppose to one extent that is because they're not quite sure what exactly they're being asked to do yet because there hasn't been a plan finalised or or anything like that. So Mm. it's difficult to react properly when you don't know the, you know, the the full details of what it is you're you're expected to do. Mm. But, you know, that sort of we're just people too uh, tweet suggests to me anyway that there is, you know, maybe footballers feel like they're being treated differently than workers in other industries. Sure. I mean, listen, I felt sorry for, just to go back briefly onto the political note, the guys who were basically told in the UK, well, you've, you've got to go back to work. I kind of thought, I mean, I am working from home, but if you said to me, right, you're going back out to a football stadium tomorrow and it's full or, you know, the equivalent of working on a construction site, you know, being back at, mm. at the coalface, as it were, I wouldn't feel massively comfortable with that right now. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there are players who feel the same even if it's not for their own concerns but you know you you don't know people's individual situation they may have vulnerable people who they live with who they cohabit with you know they might have children that are vulnerable all these things could play into their decision making alternatively they may be asked to go into quarantine for several weeks or 
couple of months, maybe until the season is finished, and they're not in a hurry to leave their families. You know, they don't. They're not desperate to do that right now. Mm. Um, I, you know, I don't think that's all players by any stretch. I know that there are plenty of players who want to get back to playing, you know, almost as soon as possible. And I think that, you know, from the stories we've seen about the footballers who have broken lockdown, essentially, you know, a lot of these guys are in that category of being in their 20s, super fit, who probably have a slight feeling that the risk of the virus, you know, rightly or wrongly, probably feel they don't really apply to mm. them. Um, so, you know, I, I'm sure there's a lot of people who, who would get back to it on that front and who also would get back to it because, you know, they feel like it will be a boost to public morale. Um, I, I have to say, I'm not as convinced as everyone it will be a big boost to public morale. I think that at the moment there are so many questions around it, around the ethics of it, around whether the product that you provide is the product that you lost, that I'm not sure how much it's going to fill people with joy. But I might be wrong. I might be wrong on that. Yeah, maybe. Look, we all need distraction and we all need some entertainment and everything else. But like you say, there are, you know, we can sit here and do a podcast, but we are not, um, let's say, taking COVID-19 tests away from anyone. We don't have to do a COVID test, you know, to do a podcast. Um, Yeah, the ethics of it are are certainly something. I think the the Premier League or, or the Project Restart document said that, uh, you know, the the tests would not in any way influence NHS uh, capacity or anything like that. They wouldn't be taking tests away from sure. from the NHS. Uh, they would be privately uh, acquiring these tests. Um, yeah, I mean, know, that's a really tricky one, isn't it? Because, mm, yes, they're not taking them away from the NHS, but they could be diverting them to NHS. Yeah, but, well, yeah, no, I agree with you, but then why should football, at the same time, I'm not saying that the NHS shouldn't get all the tests that it needs, but why Why would it be incumbent on football clubs to provide those tests to no, the no, NHS? Absolutely. You know what I mean? So there's this sort of circular argument as well, isn't there, that, mm-hmm. about that? Um, yeah. I, I, it's... I I mean, look, the Bundesliga is due to start this weekend, is it? Uh, yes, and of course we got a, a story with regards uh, Dynamo Dresden. Dresden, yeah. Um, who have to go into two weeks of quarantine because three players tested positive for COVID-19. Two of them were asymptomatic, which again is an illustration of how this thing, you know, um, can spread without anybody really knowing it. So that delays their game anyway uh, as far as it goes I think they're due to play Hanover and they're due um, that that game will be postponed because um, obviously Dresden can't play uh, you know the, the idea that once football comes back it will stay back that's a that's something of a fallacy anyway it seems to me that there are going to be interruptions because of uh, because of players and because of officials and, and people within those uh, groups testing positive and needing to be quarantined. And, you know, are they going to introduce some rules whereby, you know, if you if you have two players, you, you, you don't go into quarantine or you can play or is there a certain level of, of, of infection that your squad can handle without you being um, put back into quarantine? I don't know. I mean, it's just... Yeah, I mean, this is where sort of my knowledge comes up short. But, you know, I I suppose if you were going to just be quite brutal about it, you could say, well, you just treat 
an infection like you would an injury and those players are unavailable for that period but I mean I, what I don't understand and I hold my hands up to this is like if if those three players at Brighton say have tested positive but others have tested negative does that mean that those others ha- may not w- will definitely not develop it do you see what I mean like is mm. there a does the test only show at a certain point in the virus's progression um, is that when you get the positive? Could you be carrying it and not show positive? I, that's what I don't understand. Yeah, I don't but, um, either. Really. Yeah, it, it is a really complex one. And I think probably when these... I, let's let's just say I'm probably actually slightly less confident than I was seven days ago about the Premier League returning on its you know target date. Um, it just feels to me like when I look at this progress of how we move out of lockdown, I think that it's probably naive to think it will be kind of linear or smooth, I mm. suspect. And, and actually, in fairness to the government, they have kind of, you know, set up this one to five uh, Nando's hot style scale <laughs> to kind of demonstrate where we are, like, at any point. And I think it is reasonable to expect that there will be movement, you know, in both directions and that it won't be a clear, smooth kind of down the slope. Um, Because surely, inevitably, as you open stuff back up, you incur risk of... Of, of a second yeah. outbreak. Yeah, I mean, I just saw a headline this morning on whether it was Sky News or somebody on Twitter saying that, you know, since Germany eased their restrictions, the infection rate has gone back up, which seems normal, Inevitable. doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's about it going up in a controlled way, I guess, you know, in, in a way that's, well, in the UK they're saying that keeps it below one. Um, but it's very vague. I mean, we're, we're, we're being told the R rate of infection is between 0.5 and 0.9. That's quite a big difference, really. Uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, as far as football's concerned, I really have to admit I, I do not know. I was really pleased to see the 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 doctors kind of come together because you know it's important to have people those these people are within football and you know have the medical qualifications to at least be thinking about the repercussions of this um yeah they had so, a, they had a lot of questions didn't they they yeah, really yeah. did have a lot of of issues which you would expect because they're looking at this um you know from a a medical point of view a scientific point of view uh, within the 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 confine or within the context of of the sport that they're involved in and even stuff like the responsibility, who takes responsibility if a player gets sick? What if, and you know, obviously we hope this, this doesn't happen, but what if a player succumbs to the virus? You know, who ultimately is responsible for that? You know, is it the club? Is it the doctors individually? Is it the premier league? You know, Mm. on, on what basis is the, the responsibility shared here? Um, and, And I think what, what I thought was quite interesting was the was the statement. Well, the statement, but the the information from one of the doctors, one that they sort of feel a bit under pressure to give assurances to players that they're not in a position to give because yeah. they they just don't know the answer. Therefore, they're not going to say one way or the other. Yes, it's safe for you to come back and play, or no, it's not. And also, the suggestion that certain clubs are already. Um, what's the word? Circumventing or flouting the guidelines with regards to training and things like mm. that. Like football is a small 
industry. You know, rumors are rife and, and it's easy for, for stuff to get around from one club to another because there's always players and there's always staff and there's always these connections. So the idea, maybe the rumor that certain clubs are doing things that they shouldn't be doing, I think you kind of have to take that um, pretty seriously. Yeah, I think you do. And I think for the doctors, you know, they, I mean, effectively, they've got their kind of Hippocratic oath to abide by. They need to do this job uh, properly. And I'm sure focus would be on them if something went wrong and they must be aware of them. Mm. So the the health and safety of the players has to come first. Um, It it is such a minefield and I don't... Uh, how can I put it? I don't judge football for attempting to get back on its feet no. as all businesses are attempting to do. Um, and I don't wish to be defeatist about it. You know, I, I think, uh, I, I hope that, you know, well, I hope everything can go back to something approaching normal, you know, within appropriate time. I just think, I'm just starting to wonder if the dates that they've currently attached, let's say, feel a bit ambitious mm. they're kind of dependent on a a continuing downward trend which i fear that other areas of society opening up may jeopardize yes yeah that's true um one of the things i think that that uh, was f- uh floated during the week when it comes to uh, the return of football and things yeah. that might help or or what have you is the idea that five subs might mm-hmm. be used, which I thought was quite an interesting one. Um, I think it's been approved by the sort of appropriate FIFA body. Yeah, IFAB, a, the IFAB, International Football it. Association Board. Uh, they have made a temporary amendment to football's laws to cope with returning from the coronavirus enforced break. So there were suggestions uh, that games might be shorter, for example, mm-hmm. because we're, we're going to have these fitness issues with players they haven't played for ages, and then all of a sudden, you know, uh, they're expected to play again. I mean... That that is an interesting part of it, isn't it? This, you know, it's not like they've been sedentary. They've all got their fitness workouts to do to whatever extent they can do them. You know, on their bikes or their treadmills or whatever they might have at home to keep their sort of cardio uh, going. But there's a difference between fitness and match fitness, as we know, and the twisting and the turning and the sprinting and stopping and starting and all those things. You know, you lose some of that fitness. Not like us, for example. If you don't play football for a few weeks, you're absolutely fucked the next time you play. But there's certainly a, a, a diminishing in the fitness levels of, of footballers. So even when it comes to football returning, there is going to have to be a, a kind of mid-season, pre-season, if you like, isn't there? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And in fact, I even spoke to someone uh, within football who said that they think clubs will want to play friendly matches before they play competitive games. Um, Whether that's feasible, I don't know. But, you know, just in order to have that kind of match sharpness before they start competing for points. Um, Wow. That is going to be really interesting because, you know, as you say, yes, players have been given regimes to follow at home, but... Certainly my sense, and certainly the sense of people I've spoken to, is that, that that's not going to be the same thing as a 90-minute environment, you know, direct physical competition. Mm. Um, so that's, that puts I, I, surely at least a couple of weeks kind of lag. I mean, Germany, 
I'm talking off the top of my head, but I don't know exactly when they went back to training, but it was at least two weeks, I think, before they played, set, were due to play games. Right. Uh, and I would imagine the same's got to be true at this end. It, yeah, it, it is... Um, it is full of... It is a minefield, basically, isn't it? Everywhere you tread, yeah. you can encounter problems. And it's going to take... It's almost like a... It's going to take sort of like a heist movie style, uh, pretty incredible run of good fortune and good decisions mm. for it to happen. Mm. Uh, the substitution thing, uh, teams will be limited to three yeah. opportunities during matches to make their subs. So you can use five subs. Uh, so you have three uh, three chances to make subs, uh, as well as halftime, of course. You can make changes at halftime if you're in I Emery. Um, Great. <laughs> he can make can he can he make five at, at half time? God he would as well, wouldn't he? He would. He definitely I would. Mean, it will be interesting. Like I think that the games and the use of the squads will be quite different to what you would expect in a normal Premier League season. For example, if you're a young player like if you're Reese Nelson at Arsenal now, mm-hmm. you're thinking, Here we go. Because if Arsenal have to play you know, three games in seven days or whatever it's going to be, and there are going to be five subs. I mean, your amount of minutes that you are going to get, I think is going to go up. It is going to introduce an, uh, a sort of tactical element, isn't it? As to, yeah. You know, you might say that if you use five subs, you might offset some of the issues that you have with fatigue. And towards the end of the game's players get tired, et cetera, et cetera, and mistakes can happen or teams can take advantage. You know, we watch football, uh, or we've watched football long enough to know that, you know, towards the end of games, they can get very open, you know, as players mm. become a bit leggy. This could, on one hand, diminish that, but on the other, adding fresh legs could really add some energy and 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 really up the intensity of the final parts of games as well. So, you know, finding out who's good at, at managing their substitutions. And, and that's an interesting one for us as well, isn't it? Because we in Mikel Arteta, we're all very optimistic and enthused about what he's going to do as a manager. But in the three months when he did have football games or two months when he had football games to, to manage... One of the things I think that we observed was that substitutions were an area that he was still uh, developing. Would that be a fair way of putting it? Yeah, I think that is fair. I think that, you know, finding his, almost his conviction, you know, about the changes he made and when he was going to make them. We saw mm. uh, it, we saw him hesitate on a couple of occasions and sometimes it was costly or we saw him change his mind. Uh, you know, that is something that's going to take a bit of time for him but I guess having to deal with it you know potentially uh, more often five times in a game rather than three or five and five separate players might accelerate his development in that regard mm. um, it, it'll be really interesting from an Arsenal point of view if and when the season comes back too I mean Arsenal right now want it you know, one of the clubs sort of pushing for it to happen, and I think there is a feeling within the club that actually, you know, the the fixture list and the, and the state of the league table could be relatively favourable to the club if things go well. But I mean, imagine if they don't and Arsenal get off to a a bad start, mm. uh, we will just then be playing out a kind of mid-table season. Yeah, at this weird with this weird atmosphere, the weird intensity. Um, 
it really has potential to sort of feel very, very strange indeed. Yeah, I, I'm just looking. Well, I was going to look at the uh, the games that we have left, and I was looking on uh, Soccer Base, which is a good website for that kind of stuff. And and the the fixture list stops after West Ham. The Arsenal official website has it. That's a good um, place to to look for fixtures. All right, so and they're um, just from- in a separate category, saying postponed. Yes. Okay, so uh, have you got them there, or will I... I have, I have. Will you read out who we've got, because I've forgotten. Okay, so these are in order of their uh, theoretical Mm. dates. Uh, So in the Premier League, Man City away, of course. Well, it's not away anymore, is it? So it's Man City at at where? Villa Park? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, that's great for us, because we historically, uh, you know, we're not great going away to big clubs, are we? So I suppose we should be grateful to not be having (laughs) to do that. Uh, Brighton, a a theory away, but again, not. Um, Sheffield Sheffield United's in the FA Cup. Ignore that one. Southampton. Right, that's a difficult one, usually. Uh, Norwich. Okay. Wolves. Okay. Uh, Leicester. Okay. Liverpool. Ooh. They sound like quite hard games, don't they? They do, yeah. Uh, Aston Villa. Right. And Watford. Well, isn't there a North London derby as well? Oh, sorry, that was after Leicester. I missed that. Yeah. Right. Okay, so like... Um, but I, I wonder say, why, that, why is there such optimism that we could... What is the optimism about? That we could finish in the top six to get Europa League football? Uh, European qualification is what the club are, are, are reportedly are optimistic of. I mean, right? I I can't. Even, you can't even find the Premier League table these days. Uh, Premier League table. Here we go. So currently, currently we are in ninth, of yeah. course, on forty points. They're just what we need to stay up. Mm-hmm. Uh, sixth place Wolves are on just forty three. Right. And fourth placed Chelsea are on 48. Right. That's too far. So we're not getting top four, I don't think. I think it's too far. And I also think there's too many other teams mm. you know, in between who could who would capitalise there. I think, the, I, I mean, I suppose what you would say, look at the fixture list is, we're supposed to go to Man City. We don't have to if it's neutral venues. We're supposed to go to Tottenham. We don't have to if it's neutral venues. Um, it doesn't really make the games any easier, though. You know, I don't think it, it really has any material impact on the difficulty of the game, to be honest. Really? Yeah. What, you don't think being home or away influences the result? Well, if we're, even if we do go away, even if we do play the game in their stadium, there'll be no fans. Sure. So I don't really see that there's any significant... Uh, advantage to not going to Manchester City, you know? No, sure, sure. I do think I do think the absence of fans helps an away team, though. You know, like well, even if even if a team comes to play at the Emirates, I'm sure they'd rather do it to zero people than sixty thousand. Mm. Uh, just because statistically, home and away is sort of shown to influence results in some way. Teams are better at home than they are away for mm. whatever reason, um, especially Arsenal. You could say. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Maybe our our away record will improve without a lot of the sort of uh, trappings of actual away games. Mm. Yeah, look, I'm looking... I mean, look, 
we're three points off sixth place, which would be Europa League qualification, right? Yeah. So, you know, that's certainly not um, impossible. But I mean, I mean, is having a Europa League impossible? Is is a fair question? <laughs> well, that's the other question. You know, is is there going to be a push to qualify for European competitions that won't exist, or can't exist, yeah. or are going to be played like domestic games at neutral venues? That surely can. I mean, part of the reason that you you want to be in Europe is because of the financial benefits of being in Europe, because you sell you know, an extra round of, of tickets, of course. Mm. Um, or, you you know, in the group stages, you know, you've got a certain amount of games. Um, we are in an FA Cup quarterfinal mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's a shot at, you know, a shot at a final, a shot at a trophy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I'm sure Michel Atessa would love, you know, to get under his belt. Um, yeah, it's very odd. I mean... It's just very difficult to look at it and kind of imagine what it will be like. You mm. know? Yeah, look, it's it's one of those things where it seems to change day by day, you know. Um, yes, by well, the time well, that you're listening to this, it will we'll probably. <laughs> yeah. Well, what you <laughs> think is possible on one, you know, on one day looks impossible the next, or they talk about doing something, you know. And of course, know. the Bundesliga will provide a model of sorts although I would say that the way Germany has combated the virus and sort of their management of the cases is, is different to what we've seen here in the UK yeah are they they're just behind closed doors games in the Bundesliga they're not at neutral venues right I, th- I believe that's correct right um, um yeah, the neutral venues thing is about fans congregating, isn't it? That's yeah, the... but are they going to do that in Germany? Are German fans going to stay away, even if they can't get into know. the ground? Are they going to congregate in the streets around or in the bars? Or I don't know what the situation is with regards bars and, and sort of public uh, gatherings and what have you in Germany. It's so I don't very know. Hard. But... Yeah, I mean, even in this country, we're in a position now where there are kind of contradictions at play. So you're told, effectively, you can be outside all day if you are exercising or even sunbathing now or, you know, relaxing. <laughs> That's so optimistic in England, isn't it? And <laughs> Ireland, of course. Yes, you can sunbathe all you like. Just got to wait for the fucking sun. Uh, yeah, they can bank on that sun. But, um, you know, so a fan could walk to a ground saying, I'm just, you know, exercising here. I've walked here. That's my, you know, or I choose to sit outside. The- you can, in theory, do that. And yet, at the same time, they don't want to encourage that so mm. yeah it's all very complex and very contradictory and mm. sort of that's why I, I listen i think i think people i think it's easy to think that people are kind of being uh, kind of criticizing whatever the government does and any response and i think there is a degree to which that's probably true people love to moan but i do think that it's the lack of clarity and understanding why certain things are permitted and why certain others aren't that leads to you know a lot of the sort of confusion and uh distress we've seen over the last 24 hours Mm. well at least people are allowed to do congas that's good it's good to do the conga the good news is if arsenal win at you know man city not away but sort of away we can just form a socially distanced conga Mm. around islington 
that will make everyone feel better and we'll forget all our worries. Yeah. And as long as we're two metres apart, it's absolutely fine. Yes. And once you're staying alert and being cautious and paying attention and engaging maximum preparedness and watching out and stuff, it'll be fine. It'll all be fine. So don't Good worry. News. Don't worry. Look, I think we'll take a break here because um, we we don't really have much uh, else to talk about. Oh, apart from you saw what happened with uh, Mickey during the week, did you? I did. Yeah, yeah. But uh, wasn't it sort of knocked down by uh, Mickey's Mickey's right hand man, Mickey? Yeah, Mino Raiola. He said it was fake news that Mkhitaryan had said, you know, Arsenal should should sell him. It is quite curious, isn't it, that we turned down 10 million in January going, no, we want more than that. And I think we would bite their hands off if they gave us 10 million now. Oh, man, I, I, I you know, I, I can't really see us getting a, a fee for Mkhitaryan. And that's not a, to discredit him as a player, uh, as much as I would enjoy doing that. It's uh, because of the transfer market and mm. the financial situation and the size of his wages. That's the thing. I mean, a yeah. club's taking on a hefty, hefty load there by swallowing his salary. Mm, I thought you were going to say the size of his... Mickey. But thankfully, <laughs> <laughs> thankfully you didn't. OK, we will take a break. We're going to come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at Gunnerblog and at Arsblog on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog and on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. And if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon later today, you will get access to an interview in which Gunnerblog interviews Arsblog about Arsblog. That's right. We did this last week. It was, yeah, it, we, we swapped chairs, basically. Yeah. So it's quite it's sort of like the history of Arsblog and the podcast and the site and all that kind of stuff. And James is, James is the, uh, the, the, the tough David Frost-esque uh, yeah. uh, interviewer, and I am not Richard Nixon. 
That's all I can say. But you will get access. Yeah, you will get access to that as well if you are an Arsbog member on Patreon. Um, right, I'm going to start this one because I think this is a very important question, James. Okay, and it comes from Owen, who's at Owen Halifax, and he says, on the Arscast Extra a few weeks ago, James mentioned a very good curry house he's been using, but didn't give any details. I live locally, and I DM'd him to ask him about it, but he ignored the message. Has he become too famous to engage with the average man? Also, I think he just really wants to know where the good curry is. Sure, sure. Well, listen, let's help out a restaurant in this difficult time. I mean, I don't know when this message was sent, but probably if it was pre-lockdown, I was probably just thinking, I just want to be able to go make sure I can get a seat in my curry house if this gets too popular. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was yeah. it was a brilliantly kept secret. But you can't go in there now, and they are doing takeaway, so I might as well try and get them some business. So if you live in the sort of Clerkenwell area, Cafe Tiffin is an excellent curry house. Cafe Tiffin? It, yes, T-I-F-F-I-N. And it doesn't really sound like a curry house, in fairness. It sounds like a cafe. But, but uh, tiffin, tiffin is kind of like a chocolate biscuit of some kind, isn't it? Yeah, but it's also <clears throat> something in India. It's like a, it's like a, a type of meal in India, like a kind of light ah. meal. I think. I think a tiffin is like you get little containers with different foods in. Okay, um, I'm looking it up here. Tiffin is an Indian English word for a type of meal. It refers to a light tea time meal at about three p.m. Yeah. But tea time is not till like five or six. Or yeah, but to, it's probably the time difference to India or uh, something. Or to a light breakfast containing or consisting of typical tea time foods. Right. Nevertheless, despite this name, this is a relatively uh, traditional curry house, but it's delicious. And actually, should restaurants ever open again, you can bring your own booze. Um, mm. which is always good. And they're really nice guys. And listen, it's a really tough time for the catering industry gen- generally, so why not get a delivery from Cafe Tiffin? There you go. They're on Just Eat. They're on... I think they're probably on Deliveroo as well. Yeah, but don't use, don't use fuckers like Deliveroo. I would say yeah. if you can go directly to the restaurant, go directly to the restaurant because, you know, the, the, the Deliveroo's and the Uber Eats and all those kind the of things, they take a huge commission off each order um, and it doesn't really benefit the restaurant as much as you might hope. I mean, look, you're ultimately out to benefit your belly, uh, you know, to get some nice food in it, which is fine. But maybe, you know, try and uh, try and not use the, the, the Amazons of the food delivery world. There and, you go. Guys, Someone's going to give so- out to me again now for uh, giving out about Amazon. Does that happen? Yeah. Yeah. Is it Jeff Bezos? Does he get in touch? Yeah. At Jeff162 on Twitter. And he's like, you fucking lefty piece of shit giving out about Amazon all the time. We don't care about your super woke liberal ways. We're a behemoth. And you better better watch it because you're really impacting our business. I only made $9 trillion in profit yesterday. And it should have been $9 trillion and $3. So fuck you, arseblog. 
That's what happens yeah. quite regularly. That is what happens yeah. all the time. And if you if you do order from Cafe Tiffin, maybe say, oh, yeah, James recommended it on his podcast because, I don't know, they might chat me a, sling me a free naan bread or something. Ooh, what's your favourite naan bread? Do you have a? Do you like them just plain uh, or do you like no, the cheesy naan bread or the... I like a garlic naan. Yeah. What no. about you? I kind of like the... Um, there's one with cheese, which I like. I don't know sure. what the cheese is. Um, you know, there's a shop very near Arsenal in Finsbury Park. Mm-hmm. I'm sure people will have seen it on Blackstock Road that only sells naan bread. Get out. Really? It, it, uh, yeah, yeah. It's like a naan bread shop and you can buy like, I think one naan is like a pound, but then I think like 10 naans is like seven pound or something. And right. And all different flavours. I mean, I did hear a rumour that it was like a front for like, you know, something else. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, there's an arm bread shop in Finsbury Park. Well, there so you go. Yeah, well, look, you never know. You might get a free naan bread, some free poppadoms. This is what I'm hoping for. Do you know what I mean? Nice a little yogurt tub of dip. Chutney. Yeah. Something just to say, thank you, James. Because um, I like Cafe Tiffin. Also, I am, in theory, when things move around a bit more, I am moving away from this area. So this creepy man messaging me won't be able to catch me in there anyway. Okay. So that's why I've given it out. Otherwise, I would never deign to do that. Well, I would. Ne- I don't want to engage well, with my public. <laughs> <laughs> All right, your question. I'll leave. I'll just leave that there. I've got nothing to Thanks say to that. Yeah, no, yeah. Leave that in. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's important people know. If you see me in the street, do no, not approach me. No, be fuck, alert. Yeah, I'm not signing any fucking autographs. Be alert. I am dangerous <laughs> and I am armed. And I'm singing to a Pizza Express. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, I am quite conspicuous. Um, no, I, that's a joke. Do come and say hi and it is always lovely. But um, sure. also stay alert. And two metres away. Stay two metres away, for God's sake. <laughs> uh, right. Um, yes, I, I've got a question for you that I haven't seen anyone else ask. Okay. Is that all right? Yeah, sure. Do, have you seen the new Arsenal kits that were supposedly leaked? And if so, what do you think of them? Um, I saw... Well, obviously I saw them because we did a story on, on Arsenal News. Of course. Um, I mean, I, I quite like it, I guess. It's got the kind of 90s, 80s kind of... Um, remember that great Nike kit that we had with the white collar? Maybe the first Bergkamp season was... 94, yeah. 95, and it sort of had those those kind of, what do they Stripes. call them? Like lightning flashes. Yeah, they? chevrons. Okay, um, yeah. So it looks a little bit like that, except they're sideways. I think the Nike ones are, are downwards. If I remember, vertical. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, horizontal and vertical. Uh, they have official terms for down and up <laughs> when it comes to design stuff. This would be better sideways. Yes. Yeah, that's the, that's what Slightly they sideways pointing <laughs> down at 14 degree angle. Um, yeah, I think I I quite like it. Um, I You know, isn't the away kit supposed to be white or something like that there's been an awake it floating around mm. uh, but I yeah I mean you know on the back of the home shirt I don't know if you can see it now mm. it's like a little badge and a couple of people have been in touch to say that it looks quite a lot like the Gunnerblog logo that I use on Twitter oh so yeah you're fucked I'll man. imagine that will lead to me being sued or something well you had it first yeah that's well yeah but I mean no you had it first finders keepers 
You know, so do you think I could maybe sort of negotiate some sort of commission on sales of the new kit? I don't know that you should negotiate. I think you should be looking for at least a 10% stake in the club. Yeah. Get our foot yeah. in the door and we can start to ease... Usmanov style. Yeah, start to ease Stan and Josh out of the way, do a, do a GoFundMe to buy a few more shares, etc., etc. Undermine what? Stan from within. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they're going to let me in the boardroom whatever happens but you know we can but dream what do you think of the new emirates slogan having been fly emirates i think for the duration of our partnership with them uh it, it on the new shirt it appears to be emirates fly better i would like to know in what way emirates fly better than than other airlines you're allowed a falcon on we know that much oh of course of course, there's a, you know, a free Falcon in first class for everybody that wants to go there. I mean, it's not a good time to be an airline, is it? No, no, uh, it's not. And it might not be for, for some time. Maybe they should just change it to fly eventually. Safely. Yeah, fly eventually. <laughs> yeah. Or Emirates. 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 Remember flying? Yeah, Emirates, walk for the time being. <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it looks okay. It looks okay. So, you know, we'll see. I'll be happy to see us wear it because it'll mean, you know, we've got some we've got some football back. So, Absolutely. Well, that was my question to you. Okay. And, you know, it got asked because I've got an Ian, haven't I, on the show? It's not fair, but there you go. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's have a question here. Um, boom, boom, boom. I should have one. I did have one. Okay. Um, Decaf Metcalf's Analytical Calf, who's at the Murhaf, says, inspired by the Last Dance documentary, which is the Michael Jordan one, what yeah. story from the world of football doesn't have to be Arsenal-centric would you watch a 10-part documentary on? Great question. I saw this myself. So you've you've watched... Michael Jordan, haven't you? Last Dance, sorry. Yeah, I watch. I'm like I've watched the first six, so I think there's two more. Um, and are they coming out week by week? Two a week, I think. Two a week, right? Yeah. Okay. I've seen four. I've right. seen four of them. Okay, so I'm um, two better than you when it comes yes, to this. You're winning in this game of six sort of four. Top trumps. I'm enjoying it very much. Yeah, me too. Uh, it's very good. I I came at it from a place of considerable naivety about the NBA. My only real knowledge of this sort of 90s era of the NBA was from computer games, which I played at the time on my PC. Right. Uh, I think I had like NBA Jam 97 or something. Right. Um, so I have a vague knowledge. Uh, one thing I saw, I saw Sean Ingle maybe of The Guardian tweeting about this and it gave me a slight pause for thought. It was sort of querying the... If if uh, it sort of if it's a documentary that's slightly puffy around Michael Jordan, you know, it's very quite favourable to him. Yeah, I saw a tweet this morning, or certainly the Guardian tweeted out something that you know it was, I don't know, some kind of PR piece and and what have you. And I guess it would be yeah. interesting to read 
after the fact, I'm sure, you know, there are people who, who are well aware of the intricacies and the complexities of Michael mm. Jordan and his career and character that, you know, I'm not aware of. Um, and I would say that probably the price of access to Michael Jordan for something like this was yes. at least a, a sort of um, a friendly-ish kind of look at, at some of the things which might be deemed controversial. Um, there's something coming up, I think, in episode five or six, which I won't uh, mention here, but uh, it's the sort of thing that gets a little bit glossed over. But then there's part of me, you know, where where something happens online, you see like a cute video, you know, you see a puppy rescuing a kitten and he takes the puppy or the kitten out of the river and everyone's going, oh my God, this is amazing. And then within... 12 hours, there's somebody who's got evidence that the puppy is actually racist and a member of the Ku Klux Klan, you know? Um, There's that sort of element of things that pretty much everything that people are enjoying, there's got to be a way of taking it down in in one way or another. And I'm not saying that, like, like, maybe there is uh, a lot more to the Michael Jordan story than, than I understand, and I'm not dismissing that, but I just don't want, at the moment... To, to get into it, if that is that is that wrong of me? Should I be no, more I I, open? I just feel like when this is when when I finish watching the documentary, I'd be happy to go back and read a lot more. I think that's absolutely right, actually, and I think that um, you know you're judging that documentary on its merits as a piece of filmmaking, essentially, yeah. and it is telling you a story. You know, of course, no one story is the whole story. Um, It's the same with, you know, if you see an interview with somebody, you have to be acutely aware, like a written interview, for example, that it is one side of a story. It doesn't mean it's not interesting, but you have to, Mm. you you take it on its own grounds. And and this is an outstanding piece of documentary making. I mean, there's no doubt about that whatsoever. Um, And also it, it makes you think a lot about, you know, the power of storytelling in sport. I mean, I saw your blog post the other day about other great sports documentaries, and Mm. there really are so many. I mean, the sort of... Is it ESPN's 30 for 30 series? Yeah. They're fantastic, I think. Yeah. Um, I watched the the two Escobars again last night. Yeah, that's a great one, for example. Um, And uh, I forget which other ones. I mean, when we were Kings, you mentioned... Mm. uh, Was it... What's the climbing one? I forget. Oh, Free Solo. Free Solo. And there's another one called Maru. Oh, you should see that. It's. I really do want to, but I mean, I know it'll make me feel very unwell. It can do, yeah. (laughs) It might make you feel a bit queasy, but... Um, But yeah, in terms of football, what would I love to see? I mean... Something I actually think that was done very well and it's definitely worth trying to dig out a copy off if you've not seen it. I really enjoyed the Keen Vieira one that they did for ITV. I don't know if you ever saw it. Yeah, I think I did. Yeah, yeah. It was very good. And, and, And I would watch something with the kind of depth that's been applied to The Last Dance on sort of the Wenger Ferguson rivalry oh, I do that, think that is be, a fucking great one yeah yeah that would be really great and it's sort of that 90s period where there's enough distance from it now i think people would talk about it quite honestly quite openly mm. um i think that would be really 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 good uh i'm trying to think of other stuff really i mean it's hard because in some in some areas you feel like we're quite well covered you know as a sport there's mm. kind of 
what's kind of fascinating for me as someone who's not a dyed-in-the-wall basketball fan is kind of what I'm learning. You know, it's all it all feels new. It all feels fresh. Where I, I'm not sure that you know some in i mean 89 is a great documentary and that was on the other night too yeah and it's sort of it doesn't leave me feeling like we need another one necessarily on that sure i think uh, this isn't necessarily about a specific sporting uh event or 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 anything like that but more of a broad look at i think there's probably something really interesting to be made about personalities in sport mm. and how big personalities used to be in almost every sport. And now there's a sort of, I don't want to say blandness because there are still some characters, but when you think about sanitization, yeah, almost. the sanitization of, of, of sport and people's behaviors and, and things like that. So you think about, um, all the sports well, that we used to watch, like tennis. Dennis Rodman being a great example. Dennis Rodman, for sure. But then w- when I go back to like the 70s and the 80s and I think about tennis and there was McEnroe, McEnroe. and Borg and there was Jimmy Connors and uh, yeah. Ilina Stasi and these players. And, and then you got the the start of these sort of incredibly gifted but robotic kind of players like Ivan Lendl who would, who would become... Um, uh, brilliant at the game, but didn't have that kind of personality. Um, yeah. Andre Agassi, people like that, and now um, they're not quite. We don't quite have those characters. Snooker, you know, Jimmy White and Alex Higgins and Ronnie O'Sullivan, of course, is a massive character. But you couldn't, I couldn't tell you the name of uh, the other snooker players, darts and and things like that. I don't know. It just feels like the sort of the real extremes of character that we got at top level sport aren't really as prevalent anymore. And I think maybe it's to do with money. Maybe it's to do with just the, the, the culture and these characters don't have um, a way of, of, I don't know. Well, it's not that they can't connect. I don't know. It's just, we just don't seem to have those guys anymore. Maybe it's because the sports themselves have become more professional and, and, uh, you know, there's a need for greater dedication to reach the top level. You kind of have to put aside some of the, the flamboyance that some of those guys had, but I think it would be quite an interesting, uh, uh, series. Yeah. And maybe it almost comes from the sort of level of media, scrutiny it kind of forces a degree of uh conformity you know because every mm. indiscretion is highlighted to such a such an extent mm. um i mean look i i i love the sports docs and what's been actually genuinely quite cool is that i was kind of hoping to obviously my wife and i we watch telly together all the time and um we rarely will watch something sort of separately. It's quite, we usually, you know, it's mm. like, okay, this is what we're watching. And I was like, I don't know if she will go for the the Michael Jordan thing. I was kind of thinking that would have to be filed along Sutherland till I die or something I'll sort of get through in my own time. Mm. But someone recommended it to her and she, who's not a massive sports fan herself, has absolutely loved it. So I'm hoping that's sort of opened the floodgates for like, loads of sports documentaries yeah. to, uh, to be on our TV screen during lockdown. But yeah. we shall see. All right. Um, okay, let's have another question. Um, okay. 
This is from Pete, who's at Pete Hines 8. And he says, maybe in around 1995, I remember being very excited about a report linking Gary Speed with Arsenal. I was so disappointed when it didn't happen and he landed with Everton in 1996. Is there a player from the 90s we were linked with that disappointed you when it didn't happen? Christ, I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember that far back. The transfer Can I rumors. One, if you've, if yeah, you've please, one. please do. Uh, it was uh, it was suggested by Tim Stillman actually in, in a tweet recently that he he referenced this rumor, and I don't think it was a rumor. I think it was saying Arsenal really tried to do, and that was signing Patrick Clivert. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you remember that, but I, do. I mean, that that was incredibly exciting at the time because he was a young player. You know, he'd had a stormer in 1996 at the Euros and was a, a big star. Uh, and I was certainly, I was probably about 10, 11 years old. And the mm. idea of Cliver alongside Burkham, you know, two Dutch forwards up front was incredibly exciting. So that was one. Uh, I'm, trying to, see, I, I'm trying to remember who we were even linked with you know um yeah yeah it's so it's hard to go back that far yeah and uh, i think you're looking at yeah where wasn't chris sutton somebody who was supposedly yeah, yeah. we were after uh, when yeah. he was at norwich I mean, before he went to blackburn no regrets there no for me. me neither uh, uh, <laughs> hello chris yeah i'm I, I trying to think other players gary speed i do have a vague recollection of that um I remember this is slightly later, so this is cheating. I think it's 2002. I really wanted Arsenal to sign Harry Kuehl. Well, he was I, he was he was uh, certainly linked. Oh yeah, I think Arsenal definitely wanted to do the deal. He went to Liverpool in the end from Leeds. Leeds were relegated, uh, and you know there was a sort of tug of war, scramble for people like Viduka, Kuehl. Mm. And Kuehl was the kind of jewel in the crown for Leeds. He could kind of, yeah, he was he, uh, he was talked about as Arsenal were looking at him to play the kind of Burkham role, you know, sort of as number ten off the off the main striker, uh, left footed, lots of talent. But obviously injuries really affected him both at Leeds and then massively when he when he went to Liverpool. Mm, yeah, I'm uh, trying to remember. I just can't. You know, there've been so many stories and so many players linked with us down the years that it's hard to remember one that I really wanted us to sign that we yeah. didn't. Uh, another name that was mentioned in the 90s, I mean, I mentioned Pepe Signori last week, but one that came up almost every summer in the late 90s under Arsene was actually Robbie Fowler. It was always being talked about. Really? Um, I have yeah, no yeah. recollection of that whatsoever. <laughs> I think it's because of the age I was then when you're sort of like so hungry for mm. rumours and football news that I have, you know, kind of stored a few of these in my mind. I'm trying to think if I can remember any in other areas of the pitch, uh, like midfield and defence, but like, none are mm, jumping out. Again, it was um, it was Wenger era, so it was early 2000s. Weren't we, weren't we supposed to sign Canizares, the goalkeeper, mm. before we signed Jens Lehmann? Um yeah, there were a lot of goalkeepers who were sort of linked and and, and didn't happen. I mean, uh, one that I'd forgotten about uh, until recently, I wrote a piece about it, was Marcos from Brazil. I don't yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think what happened was Rami Shaban broke his leg, I 
think, in 2002 or 2003. Yeah. And it left us light. I think Seaman got an injury at goalkeeper as well. And so Marcos, this was 2003, I think, because it was after the World Cup in 2002, in which he'd kind of played very well. Brazil, uh, Palmeiras had been relegated. He even, he came as far as Hertfordshire and London Colney, all the way from Brazil, and then decided he couldn't go through with the deal, which was kind of amazing. Um, it's a long way to come. It's a long way to come to mm. say no uh, with a late change of heart. But there were a few other goalkeepers. I mean, Jersey Dudek is another one we all remember, I guess, who was very closely linked. Yeah. To go back to the original question, though, I can't remember players from the 90s. Um, but, you know, I think that's to do with... Uh, all the stuff I was smoking back then. <laughs> uh, have you got another question? I do have another question from Brooke Brookesy, who's on the Discord. He says, football hits ground zero. You're the FA chief executive. What changes do you make to the game? You can have two. Two changes, whatever you like. Ground zero means basically we're just starting again. Yep. Reset. Boop. Off you go. Two changes. Your word is... Final, you are the law. Oh, it's, it's not easy. Um, okay, I'm just going to say the first things that come to my head and just let that affect the game for perpetuity. Is that all right? Yes, of course. Um, I am coming round to the idea of a salary cap. Mm. Um, part of that is selfishness. In terms of, I look at teams like Man City, like potentially Newcastle, is, what they c- yeah. can pay. Is, I'm is thinking, the salary cap a figure, a defined, you know, a certain amount, or is it a percentage of? Your- I think it would have to be uh, a defined figure. I think for me, I think that then you know the team that are 20th and the team that are first can pay the same. I think that's what I would do. I think it would be a lot more competitive. It would be an interesting development, certainly. Um, but whether I, I feel a- like if you make it a percentage of turnover, you leave yourself open to it being sort of manipulated in the same way FFP has been. Why? I mean, are you saying that, that Newcastle's new Saudi owners might, um, via a third-party company, which is associated with them in a very vague way, provide them with a multi-hundred million dollar uh, sponsorship deal, which would increase their revenue way above what it might normally be? Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that might be a possibility. Wow, you are really uh, cynical today. Uh, and my second thing is I would bin off for... I would absolutely bin it off. End of VAR. Yeah, that'll mm. be me. And and listen, they'll be good and bad for that. I mean, Arsenal, you know, it would enable them to get closer to the likes of City, but it would also enable maybe certain other clubs to play catch up with them. But I just think it would create a a more interesting sporting challenge for teams uh, and for fans if it was a more level playing field mm. financially. What do you think about that idea? Do you think that it's uh, mental? I mean, I don't think it will ever happen, but... The salary cap? Yeah. Hmm. I... It makes more and more sense when you look at what's happening to football clubs and how they're... How much of what they 
spend on wages in relation to what they turn over, the percentage is too big, isn't it? Yeah. It's the biggest yeah. cost that they have. So if there's some way of of making football more what's the word I'm looking for? Fireproof or whatever it might be. If something like this were to happen again, then it does make some sense. Um, I mean, part of the reason I've been thinking about it, I was listening to one of the Arsenal Vision pods recently and Elliot was kind of making the case for sort of the... And I I think to a degree he was sort of playing devil's advocate to start the conversation, but for the sort of American model, you know, of salary caps and a draft system. Mm. And... um, you know his his the thrust of his case was kind of you know there's a lot of teams who kind of aren't really playing with the possibility to win in mm. the premier league and is that does that make for an engaging exciting attractive product if you sort of know your team has these limitations on it and you know and maybe it's because i've been watching the last dance as well and maybe it's a bit sort of pie in the sky but i do think there is something to be said for a model that provides a bit more unpredictability i mean well yeah that that makes the assumption that people are in in the sport to uh, to be of course involved in sport you know um oh right yeah yeah well you know what i mean it's like okay well i'm i'm am i as the owner of a football club happy to test my uh, my team's sporting capabilities every season against 19 teams who might be of relatively similar quality or am I as part of the big four the big six do I prefer uh, a construct in which our participation in the biggest money spinning events is is guaranteed. more or less guaranteed so what you're asking for is Turkey's voting for Christmas in a way which I don't yeah. think is is going to be the case um, if you were just interested in sport as sport then yeah but not not the other way but around. in this scenario I'm in charge aren't I yeah so, so you get to him. say yeah you get to say okay what would you do um I did think of one there a minute ago chainsaws no, I mean, look, the temptation to go down the whole rollerball side of things and introduce levels of extreme violence uh, into the game are very, very tempting. It has to be said, a sort of gladiator style uh, Premier League. But, you know, there would be issues in terms of running out of players. And I'm not sure people need to see limbs being hacked off and, and what have you. So uh, the one that I was going to say, I can't remember what it is now it was something to do with fuck it and it was quite good I can't remember um don't worry don't worry I mean I think I've sorted football so it's fine um why is Mark mm-hmm. on the discord says will we benefit from this time off at all in terms of fitness dealing with the Emery hangover etc no idea. Mm. No idea whatsoever. Mikel Arteta continues to talk a very good game, though. I mean, I don't know if you saw him. He does, yeah. With Ian Wright, but yeah. he's, you know, he's great. He's very compelling. He says the right stuff. Uh, and, you know, uh, will we benefit? It's we a, might benefit in that we might have Kieran Tierney fit. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a, maybe about who who is least negatively impacted by this rather than who benefits per se. Um, I'm still quite annoyed 
that I can't remember what that thing that I my, okay. my change to the game was. It's uh, really bugging me. Well, um, my my Wavar and the salary cap. Did they spring off a thought in your mind? Was it about was it about the, goals? the laws of the game? Yes, that's what it was. Uh, I would introduce um, a sin bin system. Okay. Like a kind of orange card. Kind of like an orange card where the foul or the offence isn't necessarily worthy of a, a red card, but you go sit in the sin bin for 10 minutes so your team has a temporary disadvantage and you're down to 10 men. Let, let me... Let me push you for some more details. I don't have any. <laughs> don't have any. I don't. I can't think about the intricacies of it. Right. But what? But what sort of offences do you have in mind here? Like, okay, let's say a guy gets a yellow card early in the game for a foul. It's a foul, and he stops a thing, and it's a yellow card. Yeah. And that's fine. And then at some point in the game, he goes in for a tackle. We've seen this happen before. He goes in for a tackle. He realizes at the last minute, I'm not going to make it. And the guy that he's intending to tackle knows that the guy's on a yellow card and sort of makes the most of that particular incident. And there may or may not be any uh, contact or what have you, or any significant contact. And of course, without VAR anymore, the referee, because you've banned it, the referee can't see, but he's not 100% certain if this player has or hasn't cleaned out the other guy there there you can give a like an orange card and he's gone for 10 minutes because right, you're not 100% yeah. sure if it should be a second yellow but you know he's done something that isn't quite there I don't know I mean I'm just floating it out there I'm sure there are better ways of, of implementing it um, yeah a sim bin I think it's an interesting idea I think that at the moment the gap between a yellow card and a red card is, and the way it impacts mm. a team or impedes a team is pretty wide, isn't it? If you dive to try and win a penalty and the referee sees that you dive, that would be a sin bin offence for me, right? Not just a yellow card because that's bullshit. Yeah, I I would also introduce it for uh, uh, goalkeepers who time waste. Yeah, I think I think yeah. Well, I think in that instance potentially two yellows would equate to an orange. Like basically because a a, a a ref's going to be so reluctant to send a goalkeeper off for that, right? If they do it twice, mm. but maybe if it's a sim bin it'll be like they'll be a bit more willing to dish out that Think punishment. about the entertainment. Think about oh, yeah, the entertainment. It's 10 about- minutes of a centre half in goal or whatever it is. Yeah, 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 exactly. Get or the gloves, they've got to bring the on a goalkeeper. And then they've used that sub. And then, I don't know, yeah, there's great implications there. Uh, Another one that I would implement, um, and it's not simply for entertainment purposes, is I would introduce a system by which if a player picks up a head injury and is concussed, you can replace him without using up one of your subs. That's a great suggestion. That is a great suggestion. Mm. I, I would second that. I would support you in that. All right. If it came to it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Let's have another question, shall we? Yeah. What about this one from Tosh on Twitter, who says, with recent links to Willian, Gerson, Gabrielle, and having already bought Martinelli Martinelli last summer, do you think we will go Brazilian in the future? 
And if so, uh, do we feel? Do you feel we might encounter problems with work permits, as we did with Wellington? Um, don't know. There was another one on Twitter as well from Baloney, who's six at six Baloney six, who said Willian, why? And I looked up uh, Willian on Transfer Marked, and I looked at his agent. Hmm. It just happens to be Sport Invest UK, run hmm. by. Kia Jurabchian. That's why. Mm. That's your why. Um, I don't know that we need Willian. He's a good player, but... Yeah, all I can say about Willian is, as many people know, my brother is a Chelsea fan, and he thinks Willian is a really, really good player. I think now, he's a good player as well. I do, I do think yeah. so, but... He is th- nearly 32. Until uh, then, though, James. Until then, he remains... 31. Mm. Um, so it would be a little bit of an odd one. But maybe if there are no, if there is no money and Arsenal for transfer fees at any rate, maybe they're just thinking we have to do it, uh, you know, have to get the freeze that we can. I mean, I think that will we go Brazilian? I think there are a couple of reasons why, yes. Um, I think that uh, Brexit potentially making the EU slightly more problematic in a funny sort of way makes South America more appealing or or as appealing in some ways. Um, you know, if you have to get a visa for a guy from France, you might as well get one for a guy from Brazil. Um, and I also think that it's an area where Arsenal might feel they can have a slight competitive advantage mm. in that it's not like tons of people are arriving from South America to the Premier League. And if you look at Ars- who Arsenal have in terms of they have Edu, who obviously is very well connected on that side. They've had a long-standing scouting network there. Um, they have Raul Senyehi, who worked on the Neymar deal with Brazil. So is used to sort of those sorts of negotiations. And as you say... Good clean deal, have, that, by the way, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good, clean deal, no complaints. No, as far as I'm aware, there are no complaints at the time. None whatsoever. So, um, and <laughs> they have links, well, they have links with certain agents who have history and clients in that part of the world. Uh, and also, the other thing to say is, as long as Brexit hasn't formally happened, you know, I know we've submitted our article, whatever it was, and we are doing it, but it's not happened yet. There are a lot of players in Brazil and Argentina and other American countries, South American countries who have EU passports, like Gabriel Martinelli, mm. who has, you know, uh, Italian heritage. And so they can, for now, get in easily on those grounds. So in short, do I think we'll be going Brazilian? Yes. And I think there are lots of different reasons why South America... It's going to be a bit of a focus for us. Right, okay. Isn't there a thing um, that if the transfer is of a certain value, you automatically get a visa? That's an interesting one. I don't know. I have to say I don't know. I know that Arsenal... The question mentioned Wellington, and he, of course, was someone who fell foul of the visa um, criteria. You have to, you know, th- these values weren't, these transfer values weren't especially high, but Arsenal were able to obtain special talent visas for mm. people like Denilson, Rio Miachi, 
was another who... Wasn't Alex you know, Song one? Possibly. Um, although he might have qualified on French basis. I don't know. I think, I think you're right. I've got a memory of Alex Song mm. getting one, actually. And I, I, I think when Ria Miachi got his, I think Arsene Wenger had given testimony on his on the player's behalf and that had been factored in. And Poor old Joel stuff. Campbell. <laughs> well, exactly. Joel Campbell had to go out to, to, to Spain, didn't he, on the perennial loans, yeah. uh, as did as did Wellington. So it's a tricky one, but, I mean, I guess it's a problem we're still going to encounter more and mm. more. I mean, the, the crucial thing, I think, is often inclusion at international level. You know, if the players are being recognised internationally by their appropriate age group, I think it's easier to kind of sneak that through. Uh, and certainly what happened with Wellington is that because he'd fallen out with his club, he wasn't really playing those international games, and that is why he didn't get his permit. All right. Um, right. Final one for today it comes from Facebook. Yeah. It comes from Tremaine Woe, who just says, Best Ray Parlour stories. <laughs> the best Ray Parler story is the miracle that is Ray Parler's body uh, at his age unreal. and drinking what he's getting through. I mean, I guess it, with his lifestyle, he has a lot of time to work out um, and he, he must be doing it. That's all we can say. He's got to be really pushing his body to, to burn off those calories. Mm. Uh, I mean, his commitment to drinking beer... At any time of the day or night is is pretty remarkable. Yeah, yeah, and staying in shape doing it. I mean, it's living the dream. But uh, best Ray Parler stories. I mean, you know, I was at the two thousand two FA Cup final, which was, I mean, yeah. the ultimate Ray Parler story. And uh, what a goal that was! And upsetting Tim Lovejoy in the process. I mean, I don't think you can say much fairer than that. I don't know if I've got any sort of like individual personal Ray Parler stories. Um, I have met Ray Parler a couple of times. Always just, he's just a great, he's just a great uh, raconteur. You know, some people just have that facility for storytelling. Yes. And he absolutely does. Everything is quite a sort of honed anecdote at this stage. Yeah. And he delivers them impeccably. Do you have a particular Ray Parler memory? Uh, no. No. I don't. This was a odd question to ask without one of those from either of us, wasn't it? Who did he score a hat trick against? Verde Bremen. Uh, was Verde it Verde Bremen? Bremen? Yeah. That was yeah. good. That, that was, was great. Uh, um, I've got a feeling he might have got one against Newcastle as well. But yeah, I loved Ray Parler as a player. I, I really loved this sort of combination of industry and ability. Uh, yeah. I think I once said on here that I'd rather watch Ray Parler than Meza Ozil, and I got a lot of stick about it. <laughs> Funny that. Yeah, well, I, 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 I kind of mean it. Like I do, kind of mean it. I love players who. I, I just, I, I just love those sort of real workhorses. It's kind of why I love Danny Welbeck when he played. Like I love people who absolutely leave everything out there it's just endearing to yeah like there are players who are technically better and technically more yeah. gifted and have more individual skills and what have you but somebody who makes it through um not that they're not talented or, or or good footballers of course they are to play at that level but but what they have to give in terms of effort and, and hard work there's something really admirable 
about that, isn't there? That yeah, know. and I have a soft spot for for those guys. I mean, you know, a, a guy who's sort of become a bit of a joke figure at Arsenal now and who certainly was a limited player but if I think back to 2007-2008 what Mathieu Flamini was doing in that midfield was kind of extraordinary I thought you know just like charging around pointing making I'm a sure for that stuff. making sure he got a big contract offer from another club I mean yeah exactly the motivation there was yeah I guess my favourite parlor memory is that he never left for AC Milan on a Bosman free transfer <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is true. Well done, Ray. Uh, okay, well, look, we'll leave it there for, for this week. Um, hopefully, uh, at some point, we might get some uh, something Arsenal to talk about. It has been very quiet from an Arsenal point of view. We are uh, ignoring, as much as possible, all the transfer stories that, amazingly, continue to clog up my uh, <laughs> News Now feed. It's just, you know, uh, do they not know what's happening, or is it just... It's just uh, it habit, is, or uh, well, uh, yeah, and something it's more cynical for them. That's yeah. what I wonder. Like, are people still really thinking oh, this is going to happen? Mm. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I I'm the same as you. It's not really my focus at the moment. No, all of your focus is on Mickey. So, all right. Well, look, we will uh, we leave it there for this week. Um, lots to come during the week. Of course, we've got that big interview, which will be available to Patreon members and uh, whatever uh, other bits and pieces we can come up with. So until then, folks, take it easy. Uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.